Welcome to the Lead and Follow podcast. I'm your host, Sharna Fabiano, author of the book, Lead and Follow. And I'm pleased to bring you the latest research, insights, and educational techniques in the emerging field of followership to help you connect and collaborate better with the people around you, whether you're leading or following. Please do leave us a review in your favorite podcast app, and thanks so much for listening. Welcome to this extra special edition. We're doing something a little different today, interviewing Sharna to hear Sharna's views on leading and following and following and leading. My name is Aran Magen, and I am very, very grateful for this invitation. Let me introduce today's guest, Sharna Fabiano. Sharna spent the last 25 years exploring a wide variety of improvisational art forms, mindfulness practices, and healing disciplines. Sharna helped thousands of people learn to dance, including me, and to tap into their own intuition and creativity. She received an MFA in dance from UCLA in 2014 and yoga and coaching certifications shortly after. Last year, Sharna published her first book, Lead and Follow, The Dance of Inspired Teamwork, and also launched this podcast. In her coaching practice, Sharna helps people overcome sticky challenges in life and work and designs experiential leadership and followership programs for organizations. This year, Sharna became chair-elect of the followership member community within the International Leadership Association, a global network for those who study, teach, and practice leadership. Sharna is also a fun, gracious, and generous human being, and I think a real gift to this world and occasionally to me in my life. Mm-hmm. Welcome to your own podcast, Sharna. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aran. This is slightly surreal, but really fun. And I'm also grateful for for the idea and to have the opportunity to talk with you again. I'm really glad you're open to it. So this is to satisfy my curiosity, mostly, but hopefully of interest to your regular listeners as well. I guess starting from the start, how how did you get interested in, in leading and following? Well, I have to say, for me, it, it really all started with social dance. I started my journey in social dances at 20 years old. I was still in college, and I didn't have any background in business or management or in an academic study of leadership, which is, I think, where most people start thinking about this concept. But I was an English major. I was a poet. I had become fascinated with partner dance while studying abroad in England. And that was the first time I started hearing these terms, leader and followers, over and over again so frequently. So because of that, for me, the idea of following or followership has never been new or strange the way it is for some who come through management or academic leadership programs where the education is very leader-centric, right? Following is, for them, this new thing. But for me, it it's always been leading and following. It's always been both because I... I started in that environment of dance and then only much later extrapolated into other parts of my life. And I'll also note, I guess, that although I I think leading and following is present and the lessons are there equally in ballroom, salsa, swing, any other partner dance, for me, it was really in the world of tango that I absorbed these deep lessons because I just threw myself into that world for so long. And I really owe most of what I know and who I am to that practice and to the tango community. So I'll forever be grateful for that. Do you remember your first understanding of following and leading when you were exposed to it in tango? 
I'll share the story of my very first tango lesson, which probably isn't what most people expect. And if anyone wants a longer description of this event, it's right at the beginning of the preface of my book, Lead and Follow. And I'll just remind listeners that this was 1997, and there were still not very many formal tango classes anywhere, nothing like there are now. So in many ways, you had to sort of stumble your way into tango by accident, which is exactly what happened to me. A friend of mine says one night at a swing dance, hey, there's this tango practice Friday night. I think you should come. So we show up and he's also a beginner, but he takes me over to the side of the room and he gives me three instructions, which I have never forgotten. Number one, give me a hug. Number two, hold my hand. And number three, now we walk. And even though this friend did not say the words lead or follow, he wasn't probably thinking of himself as some great teacher. I offer this as my first understanding of these roles through tango because I think the understanding was in my body. It was something I absorbed in that moment that I, I to this day, believe is vitally important to the relationship of leading and following. It's something about safety, it's about connection, it's about acceptance, beyond uh, everything, togetherness, and that everything comes from that. So his choice of pronoun here, I feel like is very important. He said, we walk, we're doing something together with full consent and full agency. And I've just, I've never forgotten that. And everything I've learned since then, you know, all the bazillion versions of leading and following have really all, all come back to that. And at some point, I think I realized you can't define leading or following objectively, but what you can define is the fact that these two things are in a continuous dynamic balance, like two sides of one of those old-fashioned scales where if you load up one side, then the other side goes up and vice versa. So I wouldn't say lead and follow always have to be weighted exactly the same way. It really depends on the context. But if they are unequal for too long, then... The relationship suffers, ultimately, especially if that unequal balance is, is made for some arbitrary reason like gender or a gender stereotype. So I want to here also give a shout out to my early teachers who showed me this by example, particularly by giving me the opportunity and encouraging me pretty strongly to learn and dance both roles. That I feel like I just was in the right place at the right time. I was given this gift and it was incredibly formative. It's why I'm doing what, I, what I'm doing now. So thank you, Essa Dykes. Thank you, Nil Disco. Thank you, Brigitte Winkler, Daniel Trenner, Rebecca Schulman. Thank you, Valeria Salamanov, who you can hear from on episode number one of this podcast. And all of these artists, I have to say, were just so incredibly clear in their own embodiment of both leading and following roles and in their own physicalized practice of balanced relationship. So without them, I just wouldn't have had the path. And I, I certainly wouldn't have learned everything that I've learned through tango. And I wouldn't be offering what I'm offering today. And so in terms of your interest of in, in deepening your understanding and your involvement with following and leading, you said also this came from the work that you did with your teachers at the time and understanding where else it applies. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the where else it applies came much later. You know, once I had started actually teaching tango, right, not only exploring it for myself, I noticed there was a very recurring theme, and a lot of tango dancers, I think, will relate to this, where you 
you know, you're dancing, you're learning, there's a lot of awareness of these two roles and how they are interdependent and how they complement one, one another and support one another. And you almost can't help but start to see parallels in other parts of your life, right? Oh, as I focus on listening and attuning my attention to my partner in this way, if I do that same thing, you know, with my girlfriend, boyfriend, or if I do that same thing with my like coworker, boss, like the conversation goes better. So I think that was kind of the first thing that happened. And it was still pretty intuitive at that point. I wasn't like making a lot of connections academically, you know, or um, in terms of translation, which I did much later in you know the book last year. So that was sort of the first phase. And then when I decided to go to graduate school in 2011, the program I chose had a very strong theoretical component. And so I was studying critical theory along with physical practice. And a lot of the things I was learning there enabled me to articulate how movement and dance in particular both reflects cultural values and social values and also creates social values and cultural values in the practice of it. So it's sort of a two-directional phenomenon, right? Both you're expressing something that had maybe existed before you, but also in the act of doing it, you have the opportunity to recreate that narrative, right? So a simple example is I can recreate the stereotype that I've heard of in my movement, or I can say, you know, I want to create a different way of being a follower, a different way of being a leader. So I'm going to use my body to change the reality of my experience. So that kind of piece, I think, really settled in me in graduate school, understanding the magnitude of what dancers are doing, maybe sometimes without realizing it, you know, on a like social cultural level. And then when I did my coach training, that was kind of the final piece, I think, in taking these lessons of leadership and followership and reciprocal uh, support out into the, the rest of the world, because coaching is, again, about being aware of yourself what you're doing physically, emotionally, mentally, and making choices about that to change the outcome. And and so if you're doing that on the level of leadership or followership, you know, in any context at work, at home, you know, with yourself and your art practice, you're, you're methodically rewriting like your own ways of being and showing up and behaving in the world. It sounds very organic. It sounds like almost like life life stages, you know, for for a person, you start just kind of moving around, doing the thing, and then you learn how to move around, and then you start talking with other people about what it's like to move around, and then you start thinking about your moving around and its meaning and its consequences, and then you start planning how you want to be moving around in order to attain specific changes in the world, not just in yourself. It's, it's this very beautiful, organic process of unfolding, or I guess immersing yourself in, in this line of, of this, this way of being. One thing you said about graduate school caught my attention too, that um, when you talked about how the dance is an outcome of the social forces, um, but also then generates a culture by itself. And it's a way to start influencing the culture that created it. And that in itself sounds like, an interplay between a leader and a follower to me and the way that following can change the leading and leading can change the following. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's especially a feature. I mean, it's a feature of all cultural forms, but particularly improvised cultural forms because the technique of improvisation 
whether in tango or another movement form or really any form, any practice, it brings you into the moment. And that's, you know, the moment is kind of where you have that opportunity to make a change. You know, I'm, think, I'm trying to make a link here back to just the tango world for those who are coming from that community. There is often this debate, you know, between like, we'll just playfully call them the traditionalists and the innovators, you know, the people who are kind of attached to the way things have been done or, you know, want to preserve, you know, there's like a preservationist impulse for all cultural forms. And then there's also this, you know, invention and innovating and changing. And that's, I think, normal and natural. And they both always exist. And I I do see that, as you say, a bit as leading and following. It's like there's a natural tension between leading and following forces, whether in ourselves or in a team uh, among multiple people. And so, you know, my, I think what I, what I learned and what sort of settled in me and resolved in me during those years of, um, of my MFA was actually it's both, right? Both are true all the time. And so I no longer felt a need to be on one, one or the other side of that debate. And it felt very much like when I learned to both lead and follow, I thought, oh, I don't have to actually choose. I get to be both and I can express myself in these different ways. And that just felt very complete. So since then, I, I see this, these sort of two ends, the the preservation and the innovation as just part of the same spectrum. And, you know, sometimes I'm myself like on one side and sometimes I'm on the other side. And as a group, we're always doing that, you know, simultaneously doing both in in the art form itself. So uh, I know, thank you to the dichotomy, right? Saying actually, these are these are two mm-hmm. aspects of of the same entity underneath, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to two warring factions. Yeah, and I would even say that is like it's beyond dance, right? Dance, it's very easy to see it, uh, but that's what we're doing as a society, also, you know, or as a team or as a company. Those two forces are always there as part of the same underlying totality. Yeah, two expressions of of one thing underneath. And and is it fair to mm-hmm. to then say, well, leading and following also are two expressions of one thing underneath? None of us are, you know, 100% self-sufficient, right? We can't exist without one another, right? That's, I think, been well-documented. And uh, the the nature of a relationship, for me, right, this is like the language I use, is leading and following. It is intrinsically collaborative, right? We, Of course, there's competition as well, but in the bigger sense, there is kind of an ongoing working together, right? If you're not leading or not following, you're just isolating yourself, right? You're not collaborating at all. So if you're going to be with people in a company, in life, in a dance, like you have to either be in one or other of those roles in some way, right? And there's infinite number of ways you could show up as a leader, as a follower. It's not always the same. So yeah, in the sense that they both have to be present, right, in order for a relationship to exist, in my mind, then I, I suppose they are two aspects of the same thing if the same thing is togetherness. So leading and following are both expressions of togetherness, of connection, of relating? Yes, I think I would I would say that and stand by that. I'm just thinking of a one of my favorite books, which is The Powers of Two by Joshua Wolf Schenk, and he describes many, many well-known creative relationships, many in not just artistic realms, but other realms, sports and so forth. And even people we hold up as individual great artists or 
achievers have kind of an invisible partner that, you know, was a big influence or a big reason that they succeeded. Do you think of yourself mostly as a leader, as a follower, as the thing underneath? (laughs) I think once I reached an understanding of like what it felt like for me to be in the leading role, in the following role, and a, a comfort with kind of switching back and forth, whether that's in dance or in a conversation or in any other context, then um, it, it became like less important for me to like itemize cognitively, like, am I doing the leader role now or the follower role? Um, and and so I, I feel like I do have this comfort of like switching back and forth, and I tend to default to following. I've just found that to be most efficient. And I can't say for anyone else, but what I notice is that when people default to following, generally things go better. That more following or an emphasis on the following and then leading sort of as needed tends to be like the most effective strategy for most teams and groups in my in my observation. So I tend to default to following all the time. And then I I notice if leading is necessary, right? It's at any point, like in a conversation or in a team or, you know, things are being done and say, uh, lots of people are like, oh, what about this? And what about that? And I feel like this. And then no one's making a decision. I'll maybe I'll say something like, hey, okay, how about, you know, can we agree on X? You know, shall we decide this is the deadline? And that's sort of me trying to insert a little bit of leadership (laughs) into the group. You know, this is a very iconic, I think, what should we have for dinner? And (laughs) no one wants to make the decision, you know, because, you know, deciding is exhausting, right? And by the end of the day, you don't have much, much left for decision making. So there, you know, sometimes I'll notice, okay, I have a little extra battery power. Let's have Vietnamese food, you know, and then everyone's like, okay, great. The decision is (laughs) made. So I think that's how I go through life generally, default to following. And by that, I mean, listening, receiving, being with and then have like a little part of my brain antenna up for like when when do we need leading here if if no one else is doing it can i add that to make things um move along better and did i did i hear correctly that your sense is that this is just in general good advice a good principle in life for anyone like this feels like a like a fairly universal principle default to following lead when needed Yes, I believe that to be true. Everything is contextual. But in general life, yes, that's what I observe. And so you're defaulting to following. Is that a choice you made after deliberating about it and coming to the conclusion that that's the most efficient way to move through the world? Or is that also connected to, you know, a a, a personal tendency or comfort? I think it's probably both. I think it, it it is a comfort. You know, I like to be in the observer role. I'm a textbook introvert. You know, I'm like the cat by the window looking out. You know, I like to be in that position. And at the same time, the more I worked with people and groups, the more I noticed the problem came when there was like too many people trying to lead at the same time. And that that happened a lot because I think, well, this is conjecture, but you know, I'm guessing because we don't get any information about following in in um, in most 
areas of our education or work life, right? It's all leadership. And we're taught to be a good employee or a good student, you have to be a leader. And so, of course, we all want to be good. So we we do leader-like things like taking charge and, you know, and proposing and kind of deciding. And, you know, you, there can only be one person doing that at any time. And so the problems or the conflicts or the slowing down in my observation, always happened when like multiple people were trying to do that at the same time and not enough people were willing to follow. And so that's also a a part of this way I see things now is if, if everyone defaults the following, then we have that taken care of. And then, you know, the, then the, 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 and then the leadership just happens as, as needed. And then in order for like a leader decision to have any meaning, it has to be followed, right? There have to be people willing to go with the decision. And so if that is the holdup, then that's, I think, why I say it's more efficient to default to following. You mentioned how culturally a lot of us are trained to to try to lead because there's more more to be gained by leading than by following. What kind of rewards do you think happen naturally or in the current setup, you know, of life as we have it now? What kind of rewards do leaders get? What kind of rewards do followers get? Well, in a professional context, I think the the most obvious reward that leaders get is more money, more, you know, titles. Right? I think that's pr- primarily the current structure we have. The way to increase your salary or the way to increase your your professional status is by getting another leadership title. I think that's the main thing. I don't, I don't know that there are many rewards offered to, you know, what I would call being a a good follower other than maybe like you keep your job, right? Like, but there is an advancement attached to uh, most following opportunities. Yeah. So this, I mean, this sounds like a problem, right? Yes. I think it's a big problem. (laughs) Right. Because the incentive structures are are not there, exactly. right? People are incentivized to lead, lead, lead. Mm-hmm. I wonder, though, about, I mean, po- politics is a special profession, right? You you need to be a good listener to be a politician. You also need to be a good speaker, right? But in mm-hmm. theory, to be elected democratically, you need to be able to say back what people want to hear at a minimum, right? Which requires, mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of following before you start leading, Right? And so you can mm-hmm. get huge amounts of power, recognition, title, fair, fair, fair bit of money directly and indirectly through the influence that you gain through all those things by following really focusedly in a sustained way. So I'll amend what I said a bit. I think what happens now is people who are truly great at what they do and who advance they are following, right? They're just not calling it that, right? They are listening. They are creating positive feedback loops. So they have these two skill sets, right? They're able to lead by which I mean, like make a decision, have a clear vision, like delegate. And they're also able to listen, respond to other people, get their work done, you know, things I would put in the follower column. So they are, you know, there is then, and then maybe an invisible reward, right? But it's not named as following, right? It's actually all the good things are put in the leader bucket usually. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe it's back to this unifying thing underneath, right? Like you get you get rewarded the most when you can do both and switch flexibly between them. And you still get rewarded a fair bit if you're doing mostly leading with a little bit of attention to the world around you. And you get rewarded at least when you're only following. Does that sound right? Yes, yes. And I think what I would like, you know, and what makes this important for me is I want to acknowledge what's really happening, you know, by naming it following. And, you know, people can have a different name for it if if they want, but by not naming it, then it's like becoming the most successful is actually not accessible. It sort of happens by accident or because a few people figure it out. But if you actually name, there's two skill sets here to be good at what you do in any capacity, you have to have this ability to switch back and forth. If we just name those things and claim leading and following as equally important, then more people can learn both, do both, and you know we just get better outcomes overall. In those situations or for, for people in a leadership position, would you still advise the same, follow mostly, lead only when needed? I think it I think it depends. And the, there's a lot of different kinds of leadership positions. I would definitely still uh, insist that both are necessary, but the percentage might shift. Hmm. I'll switch completely now. <laughs> you know, fade out, fade in, totally new scene. <laughs> different part of the city. Um, I, I can only imagine a lot of people are curious about this. I know I personally am it's just like how do you take all this profound material that you talk about and think about and teach and just how it colors your own life like when you go to the park you know when you are shopping for groceries like what what does it feel like to be inside charna's head and have this like you know one lens on the right eye of following and one lens on the right eye on the left eye of leading and just like See, like, do you, do you filter the world differently? Do you think than than other people? Are you attending to other things? What's it like to be you with all this in your head? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it's impossible for me to compare what's it like to be me to anyone else because I don't. I'm not in anyone else's head. I think that you know, just that idea of following first is kind of what I come back to, and it you know sometimes it it's not good to do that. Like I'm thinking now of just the funny um, example of grocery shopping, which I frequently do with my husband. And, you know, he likes to have a list, go in, buy the things on the list and leave, right? This is very um, systematic in his shopping. And my tendency to follow first, right, is more like an open kind of, uh, observation mode. And so I tend to get distracted much more easily, like in the grocery store. And so I have to kind of actually decide in advance, I'm not going to do that, right? <laughs> so that I can like not spend three hours then in the grocery store. So that's like a case where I'm very aware of shifting my natural state, right? Because I want a particular outcome, like we need more coordination, like more leader mind for this task than follower mind. I don't know. You know, on the other side, if I'm in a park, like this is the, the the two examples you threw out there. So I'll just take those. I think we do the opposite, right? Like my tendency is like, I want to be with the trees if I'm in a park. Like that's the whole purpose for being there. My purpose is not to just make it around the track, right? And go home. So 
there I feel like I want to even emphasize that mode of being present and aware and listening. It's not, I'm not going there with like, okay, I've got 25 minutes, you know, in and out. I'm going there with, with more, more time flexibility. I'm just thinking because of my training, you know, because of all the time that I've spent in this kind of improvisational dance world, in the world of mindfulness practice, you know, thinking about what following means, you know, in an embodied sense, I think I might maybe uh, have more access to that mode than the average person just because society doesn't train it. You know, I kind of had to very deliberately spend many years putting myself in that mode in order to be able to have that openness. That's just a guess because, again, I'm not in anyone else's head, but I go through life maybe in a bit more like open receptive state than someone who hasn't done like the same kind of training as me. That's a guess. When you talked about your experience in the grocery store and your tendency to be open and receptive and follow the smell of the watermelon or whatever is there, think about buying it before um, and how you have to sometimes decide in advance that you are going to go in, out, do the things. It made me wonder about internal leading and following, following yourself and leading yourself. Because it sounds like, you know, experience A in the grocery store is more like following yourself. You come in and you have an idea, but then this other, you know, smell comes up or a notion or a thought or and you're like, okay, let's do this. Um, whereas experience B is more like leading yourself. Um so I'm curious in general about your thoughts of how we talked, we talked before about how, you know, if there's this root, there's a common root and following and leading are two expressions of that root. I feel like now we're putting a cap where they also end up connecting to the same thing when it's applied to ourselves. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about leading yourself, following yourself. And, you know, I'll add another little, tack on it, which is who, who is the me when I say I'm leading myself? Am I the leader in that situation or the follower? And when I say I'm following myself, am I the leader or am I the follower? To my ear, when you say I have to tell myself to do it this way, the identification is with the leader role and the actor is, is a little more external. And when I say, oh, I had this thought, you know, I came in here thinking zucchini, but now I'm thinking uh, eggplant. Exactly. That's exactly what happens to me. <laughs> it feels like the the impulse is external and the choice to follow is the, the part that I identify mm-hmm. with. So that's my, that's my snarl of questions at you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, this is exactly what I, uh, I contemplate often actually. And I think I would relate to it m- most in my day-to-day work because I work at home and I'm I'm constantly kind of, again, steering myself, you know, there's my leader, internal leader between, you know, a writing task, like an art, you know, art making task, a podcast task, a coaching task, like I have, you know, pretty uh, complex constellation of things as a self-employed person that I schedule myself through. And uh, when I speak in that way, it's definitely 
my internal leader. And this is going to maybe sound like an oversimplification, but it sounds a bit like uh, coming more from my mind when I talk to myself that way. Like I think of my internal leader more almost like in the left brain way. It's more like that kind of um, executive function type of command center, like cognitive making decisions place. And, you know, I use that to like make my to-do list, make my calendar for the day is to remind myself, okay, it's two o'clock, it's time to do this now. Uh, and I rely on that, you know, to, to to have the kind of work life that I do. And, you know, then there's the other side, which is, okay, once that's in place, you know, I, I can't stay there I have because I have to then do all the things, you know, and do them in a way that feels creative and generative and and deep. And so... As soon as I put myself in the chair, like at two o'clock to do, you know, to edit the podcast or whatever it is I'm doing that day, then I have to kind of get out of that part of myself and then I'm in the follower. And that for me feels like a much more whole bodied self, even if it's at the computer, like my hands are involved, the way I'm sitting is important. I have to be comfortable. I usually wiggle around and stretch, you know, every once in a while. Uh, if I'm in the art studio doing things, that's also my follower self in action. So I know I might be standing at the wall easel or I might be sitting working with different materials. It's definitely something I'm very aware of on a, you know, sometimes hourly basis of now I'm, okay, I've told myself with the inner, inner leader what to do. And now I have to do it. And then, and in order to do it, I have to be full-bodied in the follower, me. I think that's the best way I can describe it. I'm sure it's not 100% accurate from like a neurological point of view, but I, I experience it that way, more like mind-based and like full-body-based. For you, is leading and following, are, are they such essential forces, such, you know, elemental components of connection that there's just no, no other way of relating, essentially, you're, you're always either leading or following to an extent when you're in relation to anything, to yourself, to the world, to other people. Is is there another state to be in, or is this really it? Mark and Samantha Hurwitz wrote a book called Leadership is Half the Story. And they say if you're not leading or following, then you're not collaborating. And I agree with that. You're just not in the relationship at all. So it's as if you were on the dance floor with your partner and you just up and walked off and sat down. Now, I want to put a caveat here, which is that sometimes that is a totally appropriate response. We do sometimes need to exit an unhealthy relationship, for example. And on a slightly different scale, every person leaving their job right now in the midst of this great resignation is doing the equivalent of walking off the dance floor. They're saying, I'm not willing to follow this company anymore. And that's fair. But if you're not explicitly leaving a relationship and you're still checking out, then that's just not really a sustainable situation. Sooner or later, someone will ask you to leave or there'll be some other negative outcome. I would also note here that it's harder to check out when you ask this question on a larger scale. So you might be able to end your relationship with a friend or a romantic partner or with a company. But how do you refuse to be in relationship with, say, a nation or with the planet? I think it's a much more difficult and involved question. There's a great episode, by the way, with Tara Laidlaw earlier 
in the podcast season where we chat about how to be in a healthy lead and follow relationship with land. It's a beautiful episode and, of course, an extremely critical question right now. So I encourage you to listen to that and give that some thought. But at this big scale, I think I have more questions than answers right now. So like the citizen, for example, is the follower, right, on a civic level, on a national and a state and even a city level. So I'm asking myself a lot, like, how am I showing up in that role? Am I intentional in that choice? I, I don't know. I think it's something, you know, I would encourage us all to think about. So in, in an interaction between any two people, let's say, to keep it really simple, is, as long as they're engaged, is somebody leading and somebody following at any given moment? I think it's possible for both people to follow at the same time. But I don't think it's possible for both people to lead at the same time. It, with both people following, what I notice, and this is, again, back to my uh, conviction that following first is more efficient, generally speaking, is that when both people follow, like one another, say, uh, at, at some point, either leadership will emerge, meaning both people are kind of following the same concept or the same idea without having to say it. Or someone will gently lead, right, by like saying something or walking in a direction or something will happen. So leading frequently emerges from following. I, I, I noticed that a lot um, in a very organic way. And even with large groups of people, this, you know, phenomenon of sometimes they're called leaderless movements, social movements, but really there is leadership. It's just a leadership that's emerging from uh, masses of people following the same idea or the same impulse. But it doesn't happen the other way, not in a very healthy way. Like if you have 10 people trying to lead at the same time, you know, they might like fight it out and dominate one another. And then you have sort of followership by coercion. But this is not, in my mind, like healthy or productive for anyone. And so, you know, that might be like one way of saying there's a, a difference between a democratic hierarchy versus like a dominance hierarchy. And, the, you know, the democratic hierarchy is the one I'm advocating. You know, everyone's following and then you lead as necessary. But one of the things I'm getting from your answer is that to take a simple situation, like there are two people doing something. Often somebody's leading and somebody's following. It does not work at all if both people try to lead at the same time. And it can work quite well for both neither person to lead and maybe for both people to follow intentionally or unintentionally until a need to lead arises. But uh, a follow-follow dyad can, can still work well. Yes, I think for a period of time, yeah. Contact improvisation is another partnered uh, dance form. It's frequently described as two followers, and what you're following, what they, the two people are following in that case is where the weight is going, you know, of the two bodies. So you're following momentum or you're following gravity or you're following the dynamic of the movement itself through space. So there is a leader. It's just the leader is not like an individual human. It's a kinetic phenomenon. So in that case, you have two people following first. And then sometimes you would lead if there's like a safety concern. Is it possible, in your opinion, to lead, purely lead, without following anything? Yes, but not for very long. 
you know, this is pretty abstract. So let's just try to put it in context. So say you're, you know, a team leader and you have four people on your team and your job is to set the agenda or set the plan. You can do that. Maybe you spend an hour making a plan and saying, here's the plan, but no plan is perfect. And so if, you know, at the end of that meeting, if you don't listen to the feedback of your team members and say, oh, well, this number four, actually, that's not possible because we don't have that machinery. If you don't listen to that feedback, things are going to go badly, right? And so, yes, for an hour, you can lead and only lead. But if you kept doing that and just, you know, steamrolled, then inevitably things would deteriorate. And I think that's probably the case in every context. I wonder also about the internal aspect of it, right? Can can we generate anything out of nowhere, de novo, or is it the case that whenever, you know, a tyrant issues a decree, that tyrant is still following something internal happening or even external in the world and responding to it, a threat, you know, an ambition, you know, a childhood experience, Um is it is it possible i wonder to to only lead to just generate without in a sourceless way you know you make an excellent point yeah i don't i don't know that i would say for myself i've ever made a choice that's uninfluenced by something whether that's a past belief you know or my own history or an external circumstance Maybe it's back to our uh, bias, right, of toward leadership. And we think, oh, leading is primary, but perhaps actually the following is primary, right? That we're always responding to something. We're just not aware of it. And in many practices, you know, mindfulness included and coaching and so forth, the more you're aware of what you're responding to, the more then you can have different choices. You can say, oh, I, I'm responding to that. Good that I know that. I'm going to respond to something different. Right, which is basically just changing your following allegiance. You know, like, oh, I've been following this this old belief I have that I'm not worthy. Like, I don't want to follow that anymore. I'm going to follow a different one. And based on that different choice of what I'm following, maybe now I'm following a, you know, a belief that I am good enough, that's going to be what I'm following. And based on that, I can choose, right, which is like then leader self a different course of action. Where... Do you envision your work on leadership and followership going? What are <laughs> the next things to be working on and to be watching for? Well, the piece that I'm working on right now is in the context of work. And I, because I see this, you know, leadership and followership really as a, a paradigm, I think it could appear in, in lots of different contexts. Uh, that's the one I'm working on right now. I think there is a an abundance of, you know, sort of dominance hierarchy type of thinking, you know, in the corporate world, especially and in the world of just organizations, where m most of us work every day. And I, I would really love to introduce these ideas in that context, so that the way people work together can can change, right, from like this leader-centric model to a partner-centric model. And I think that could produce a lot of 
pretty radical changes, you know, back to this uh, reference we made earlier of how people are compensated and incentivized. Like, I think it's worth reconsidering that. We're in a moment where a lot of people are changing jobs, kind of questioning their own priorities. And I think a lot of it comes down to this quality of relationship that has just been taken for granted for so long. So I would like to present a way of not only thinking about that, but actually training. Like if we can think of professional development training as living in these two separate modes, leading and following, then it starts to become okay to follow each other at work. It's not that we only have to be striving to be the leader all the time. If we're only defining good as having a leadership role, that's just inherently problematic. Like what's everybody else going to do? And how can everyone else feel good and fulfilled about what they're doing? Like it just se- it seems really silly to me. So can we rewrite that script and normalize following as something everyone should be doing all the time and then leading as necessary? And then we could maybe share the leading. Last question. <laughs> Probably most people listening know you and admire you already. <laughs> but maybe they're missing a corner. So where are all the places that they can learn about you and your work? <laughs> well, I put everything on my website, as probably everyone knows, sharnafabiano.com. The podcast is available everywhere. I've always welcome feedback. So please write to me anytime. Uh, let me know what you think, what else you would like to see in this kind of conversation. I have a couple of group workshops that are kind of tangential to leading and following, but are kind of designed to Uh, nurture your creativity and introduce some kind of basic coaching practices in a easy one hour uh, workshop sort of way. So those are also on the website. So I'd love to see you in one of those. Are these in person or online? These are online. So accessible from anywhere. Accessible from anywhere. Yes. Including Denmark. (laughs) Right. Time time zones notwithstanding. Um, Any last thoughts to share? I think I just want to, you know, and and everyone listening knows me probably. So this, uh, you know, may be redundant, but I I just want to encourage everyone to uh, celebrate following, you know, and if you still stumbling over that word, give yourself um, another word, you know, support, perhaps partnership, embrace that we've been taught for so long that this is the inferior state. And that's it's not only untrue, but it's dangerous. You know, if you scale this up from work to family to governance, it's dangerous to consider anyone is inferior to anyone else for any reason in any context. And, it, you know, it, it may sound not so dire if you're talking about like a work day. Oh, yes, of course, I'm a subordinate worker, right? But that thinking is when it's scaled up, the same kind of thinking that is present in supremacist institutions, for example, right? It's obviously much more violent there, but it's the same sort of thinking. And so when you reclaim the role of follower and partner, what you're doing is you're actually upsetting that dominance hierarchy. You're actually creating a new way of relating that's more equitable and less supremacist. So I know that's sort of a big, you know, a big leap, but I do feel like the kernel is the same. So know that it's really a, like noble work to re- reset these roles because they ripple through every every facet of our existence together.
Sharna, thank you for this really wonderful experience of getting to dive into your head and swim around a little bit. You know, it's so nice to hear you thinking and so enlightening to hear the the both the subtleties of your thinking on leading and following, but also the very clear big picture framework that you fit it into. Um, it's it's amazing to me how you, you keep this focus on the, the micro and the macro, right? the individual and the societal at the same time. So thank you for this great opportunity. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you, Iran. And I, I think the podcast interview format is a sensational example of leading and following. And you're uh, an exceptional partner. And um, I'm always amazed how new ideas emerge from this relationship. It's one reason I, I love doing this. So thank you so much for the suggestion. Next time, Sharna's back in the driver-listener seat. <laughs> Till then. You have been listening to the Lead and Follow podcast. Special thanks to Glover Gill for composing our music. And thank you to all of our subscribers. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show with a paid subscription. And if your team or organization is interested in followership training, please reach out anytime. I'd love to help.